I was going to just read it loud, but there we go. Good morning, my name is Pete Jackson, and it's my pleasure to read the Word of God to you this morning. I will be reading from the book of James, starting at the ninth verse. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with the scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived giving birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of God. So good. They did a great job, didn't they? Yes. Amen. I'm glad to see that Jared is actually wearing almost exactly what I would have been wearing at his age. I knew I should have kept those jeans. It's, uh, Jared, you look great. It's very uh, late 1980s. It's brilliant. Good man. Wonderful. That's a compliment, by the way. I'm not being... Uh, it's good. You're doing a great job. You know, um, to give you a bit of an insight as to what it looks like for me in the week, um, one, of my, uh, well, the, one of the sides of my jobs that uh, many of you don't see is uh, as the uh, executive pastor of the network, I spend a lot of the time doing HR and budget and staff appraisals and uh, facilities, and I've got a brilliant team, and I'm very, very grateful. And then on a Wednesday, I get the privilege of hunkering down for the whole day to study the Word of God so I can come and share with you on a Sunday morning. And so I spend all day on Wednesday, and the way that looks is uh, I read the passage several times, I really think through it, I make my own notes, then I just... uh, I read a lot of different uh, commentaries, I listen to sermons, I I really jump into it, and then I write. I write a massive manuscript that's uh, several thousand words normally each week, and then I start a little bit like a sculptor, I guess, start chipping away, you chip, and and I I get rid of masses amount of my sermon, you'll be glad to know, every week, And, uh, and then on a Friday morning, I get up early, 
and, uh, and I do the same again for half the day, then I get all my slides in by Friday at 12 o'clock, that's my hard deadline, and then on a Sunday morning, uh, then I get to have a half a day off on Friday, then I'm off on all day Saturday, and on Sunday morning I'm usually up about 5 a.m., and I do the same, and uh, so that's what my sermon prep looks like, and, 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 the, and the thing with that is that I, I have one thing in, in my mind, and I've said this so many times, so what? Like, why, why am I doing this? Why should you listen? Why give me your attention over the next little while? So what? And you can find my, the perfect job description for, for anybody who's in ministry. You can find it in Ephesians where it says to equip the saints for ministry. I feel like it's a little bit, though, this morning, like I'm a, a, a trainer. A, a trainer who is going to be teaching you how to fight. Because one of the things that I was praying through as I was even driving in this morning, I felt the Lord speak to me really clearly when he said this, what, what would you say if you didn't care what they thought about you? So buckle up. Because seriously, I, I was really convicted by that. What are, what are some of the things I would say about this passage we just read through if I didn't care what you thought about me? Now that doesn't mean to say that I'm just going to be belligerent and rude. But actually, if I'm to show you what this scripture actually talks about, we will be offended. You will be offended because it hits every one of us in different parts of our life in a way that we can't ignore. If we do ignore, it's to our own detriment, as we'll read in this passage in a second. Because today I feel like I'm preparing you for a fight. I'm preparing you for a fight. You can read about the armor of God in Ephesians, and for those of you who are maybe uh, new in church and you know, you've not read the Bible or you're, you're still thinking through following Jesus, there's a whole beautiful passage in the Scripture that talks about the armor of God and, and how as a Christian we can prepare ourselves for the battle that life throws against us. One of the interesting things, though, and for those of you who have studied this passage, I'm sure you're aware of this, is there's no backplate. This front, it's, there's no back plate. And, and that was quite common in, in Romans times because who, who has your back? The other people around you. And so today, I, I really want to, I want to be that person behind you. I want to be that person who says, look, we're in a fight. It might shock you when I tell you what I'm about to say to you. Uh, so please don't email me. If you do email me, um, then... Uh, then I, I'm not sure how I'd respond, so uh, maybe test me out, who knows. But Halloween is actually one of my favorite times of the year. I know, sharp and take a breath. I really don't care what church is like, oh, you mustn't say Halloween. Here's the reason why I actually think Halloween is one of my favorite times of the year. Listen up, because I don't want the emails. Listen, listen really carefully to me. It's because it seems to be the one time of year where everybody in our community becomes aware that there's a spiritual aspect to life. Let me say that again. It's the one time of year where it seems like our community becomes aware that there's a spiritual aspect to life. Now, that outworking of that we can disagree on. Obviously, you know, we don't like all the nastiness and the horror and everything else. That goes without saying. But the one thing that I can pull out of it and say I can leverage this is that this is the time of year when we go out and we say there is something otherworldly going on. There's something else going on. 
And friends, we're in a fight. We're in a spiritual fight. And we read right at the beginning, we, read, we really uh, looked at this last, year, uh, last week. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, the fight in life is that we all, when, when you meet various trials, when the storm comes, it's not if, when the storm comes, in a world, and I shared this last week, we are not owed, regardless of what the culture says, it is not easy, you are not entitled, you don't have everything you need in order to get through this life, regardless of the message from culture, all those things are not true, you will go through a storm, you will go through a trial, it will be challenging, and there is steadfastness to be had, there's maturity to be had, lacking in nothing the Bible says, but I'm here to tell you part two, there's a fight in the middle, regardless of your wisdom and your holiness, there is a fight. Now, by show of hands, how many of you have actually been in a physical fight? <laughs> really? Wow. I'm actually, there were some hands there I'm kind of surprised about. <laughs> I must admit, Laura, did you have your hand up right then? Wow. Actually, I'm not that surprised. <laughs> Got to be honest. Got to be honest. You know, I don't know if you've been in a physical fight. I'm talking throwing punches, not, not scratching, hair pulling. Not the nasty word and then running off. I'm talking about throwing punches to the point when you now watch a movie, you see somebody punch somebody else, you go, they just broke their hand because actually thumping somebody in the face really hurts. It's not like this. You don't see that part in the movie. But if you, if you are about to get into a physical fight, you prepare yourself. Your posture changes. You get ready. And so I want to encourage you this morning towards a posture change. You become hyper-aware. All your senses are tuned in. And I want to encourage you this morning that we have to be in a posture of being ready for a fight in the middle of the trial. Why is that? Why do you need to fight in the middle of a trial? It's not just about this serene, peace-filled, um, you know, like, oh, God's just given me this tremendous amount of peace in the middle of this challenge. And that is wonderful. But I'm telling you, more than that, from experience, 50 years old, from experience, the actual emotion in the middle of a challenge is less about feeling the peace of the Lord and more about a fight. Things get gnarly in the middle of trials and challenges. Because trials always trigger temptation. Trials always trigger temptation. Now, James can either be a brilliant, no-nonsense Bible teacher, which is what I believe he is, or he is unbelievably easily distracted, or both. Because on one hand, he's talking about trials and, 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 and how we're steadfast and mature in the middle of trials, and then suddenly, as we've just read, he's now talking about temptation. Hang on, James, can you just stay on track, please? Like, is it, is it trials and challenges or is it temptation? And right in the middle, he says this, let no one say when he or she, this is either sex, is tempted. I'm being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own or her own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James does not mess around. I like James. But it is not a mistake that you start talking about temptation in the middle of trials. Because trials trigger temptation. It's the same Greek word. 
you look at the Greek of temptation and trials in previous verses, it's exactly the same word. It's like a homophone. It's, it's very difficult to, to translate into English, but it's the same word with a different emphasis. And James is saying that trials and temptations go hand in hand. It's the same fight. It's the same fight. It's inevitable that trials trigger temptations. And he uses an example. It's a very clever example how James goes about showing us how this works. The example he uses is by talking about people who are in a, in a, in a rough stage of life, in a, in a challenge, in a difficulty, or something that life gives you that we would say is bad, which is poverty, and then something good, wealth. He's like, look, either one can be a challenge. And we have a choice in the middle of this challenge as to whether it's going to humble us, make us more grateful. If you suddenly came into a whack load of money, that actually is a trial. Because on one hand, this, this amount of wealth, and James is using this example, can either turn you into somebody who is humble and grateful and generous, or the flip side can happen. You can turn you into somebody who is arrogant, judgmental, self-righteous, and actually, as statistics show, the richer you get, the less money you tend to give. So you have this choice, this temptation in the middle of it, and it'll either lead to the crown of life, or as we read later, death. James does not mess around. So we can say, trials will come, tests will begin, so you are tested in the middle of this trial. Temptation will follow, and change will happen. Either change towards life and maturity and steadfastness, or as James calls it, the crown of life. In other parts of Scripture, it talks about reigning in life, R-E-I-G-N, reigning as you would sit on a throne in life, or as James says, death, spiritual death. Trial comes, tests come, temptations come, all hand in hand, and he uses his example of being rich or poor, and it's like James, and maybe a little bit me this morning, uh, in the corner of that boxing ring, and we're whispering to you, look, this is what's going to happen when you get out into the middle of the ring. It's going to get nasty. Punches are going to be thrown. You need to ready yourself. Because as the trials and challenges come, it would be naive of us to think that reading the Bible for a few minutes in the morning and then maybe journaling a bit is actually going to be enough to get you through this challenge in such a way where you end up feeling like you have the crown of life rather than feeling like you have death. In the middle of it, we have choices. But he makes something really clear. That God never tempts us. He never tempts us. It's, it's right there in the first part of the scripture. Let no one say when he is tempted or she is tempted that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. See, God may test us, James says, but he never tempts us. 
He never tempts us towards evil because he has got nothing to do with evil. How do we know that? You can just keep reading the passage. In verse 17 through to 18, he talks about these amazing attributes that God the Father has towards one of us. He's not, he's not kind of quickly changing his mind. He is good. He is loving. He is kind. He is merciful. He is patient with every one of us. So why would a loving, kind, merciful God suddenly decide to tempt you towards evil and death? Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So James is saying, look, in the middle of these challenges and trials, you are going to be tempted. And you need to know where these temptations come from. But it doesn't come from God because God is the giver of good gifts. Every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of life. This perfect gift is from above. We would call it common grace. That regardless of the kind of life you have led up until now, that God is kind, God is good, God is loving. That you can blaspheme God, hate on God, say terrible things about God, and still enjoy really good steak or kale, if you want kale. You can still enjoy that. You still enjoy the warmth of the sun on your face. You still enjoy a beautiful view. You still enjoy fantastic kids and great memories, really laughing hard over dinner with great friends. That is common grace. Every perfect gift is from above. That God still in his grace and mercy, even if you are sat here this morning resisting him with everything you possibly can, he still will in his grace and mercy love on you so much. And he shows it from these gifts the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow. The sun, is sta- the sun is never changing. God is never changing. He's not going to tempt you one minute towards evil and then towards good the next. That's not who he is. And then this most incredible verse that I love, that I wish that I could just, and I've spoken around this topic many times, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Can I tell you, Christian friend, and you need to remember this in the middle of your trial and your challenges and your temptations, it is God who chose you. You did not choose him. He chose you. In the middle of you cursing, in the middle of you living against him, in the middle of you being an enemy, as the Bible says, against God and all that God believes in and stands for, he chose you. He chose you of his own will. That on one day you had no aspect or element of faith in you, and then the next day by his grace and by his love for you, suddenly you started thinking about him. Suddenly you started considering him. Suddenly you started going, hey, I wonder what all this God stuff is about. Where did that thought come from? The Bible's really clear. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one gets to Jesus, nobody gets to the Father unless there's that initiation of faith that of his own will, he chose you. Why is it important to remember that in the middle of temptation and trials? Because you need to know he is for you, not against you. That he is championing you. We just sung, and and, and I didn't know what Jared was going to prep this morning, and you did a great job, Jared, of explaining that that song. You really did. And uh, yeah, see, six of us agree. (laughs) but he'll climb mountains to get to you he'll go after the one you are the one this is a word for some of you this morning you are the one sheep that he went after 
when all the 99 were like, didn't even notice you'd gone. Culture doesn't notice you've gone. Glenn who? God notices of his own will. It is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. He chose you. He chased you down. He decided it was you, which is why I know God planted that song in Jared's mind. Because that is this what we just sung. You were his enemy and he still chose you. It says, while you were still sinners, he died for you. Who? Jesus. See, Jesus doesn't wait until we kind of clean ourselves up. And now, okay, now you're worth me dying for. No, when you are a stinking, shameful, guilt-ridden sinner who is so messed up beyond all fixing in this culture, projecting something while knowing that you are dying within, that's when Jesus died for you on the cross. That's when he said, I'll die for him. I'll die for her. I choose you. So he's not going to suddenly start tempting you towards evil. Why is that important to know? Because you need to know where sin and temptation comes from. Remember the boxing analogy? You're in the ring. You need to know where these punches come from. And this is where it gets a bit weird and my analogy starts falling apart. Because you actually start punching yourself. Which would be kind of odd and fun to watch. I don't know if you remember any of you who had little kids where they're old enough to say, this is terrible, I'm going to confess this. But I know there's dads in the room that have done this, where you kind of pretend that the kid's punching themselves in the face. You know what I'm talking about? Where you go, and the kid's laughing, not crying, because that goes into a whole other thing that you should be calling the ministry of children over. But you kind of, and they're giggling, it's fun. Literally, that's what we seem to be doing, because sin starts from within you. Don't believe me? You're not going to admit that, but, but each person, that's you. But each person, parenthesis, apart from Glenn, it's the devil, close parenthesis, is tempted. No, it's every one of you, every one of me, bad grammar, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has been conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Where does sin come from? Where does temptation come from? Where does this struggle come from in the middle of the challenge for you to decide, I'm going to go this way or I'm going to go that way? Where does that come from? James says it comes from within us. It starts within. What I'm about to say is extremely countercultural and yet completely obvious. It is no one's fault. We cannot attribute blame to anyone else No one makes you sin. No one makes you sin because we all desire it. Desire. You cannot blame anything. This is a shock for our culture because in our culture we're quick to attribute blame. And yet we are without excuse. We love to blame. It's somebody else's fault for the way that I am. It's somebody else's fault for the way that I reacted. That choice in the middle of a trial, somebody comes up to you and they say something. Trial begins. How are you going to react? The temptation is, well, if you think I'm bad, let me tell you about some of the criticisms and some of the things in your life. So the fight begins. Where does that desire to put that person in place? It comes from within. So you have to fight. But it's not my fault because they're the ones that started it. No, it is your fault. Because sin gets birthed from a desire that we have, and I know all about blame. 
One of the most important things for every uh, young, uh, certainly for in my, I, I've learned in my life, four most important words in my life, uh, and you can use them in all sorts of different ways, especially in my marriage, because I know this is not the case in your marriage, but in my marriage, and we've been married 30 years in a couple of weeks' time, so I, I've got really, really good at this, four words that I use all the time. Oh, yeah, right, Sorry. You can say it in any different ways, in any different, oh, yeah, right, sorry. Glenn, you said you were going to pick up something from Costco. Oh, yeah, right, sorry. Because I just assume that I, you know, I'm a bit of a village idiot and I do things wrong, and so actually Sarah has every right to give tribute blame to me when I forget to do stuff. I'm not talking about that kind of thing. What I am talking about is when I sin, when I am tempted, I am enticed away by my own desires. Or we blame God, and we've just seen that God is good, God is kind, he gives good gifts, we shouldn't blame him, he is not to blame. We blame the circumstances that we're in. If this was different, if that was different, I wouldn't be doing this sin or that sin. Or it's just how I am wired, I react badly, I've got a temper, I'm angry, or I just kind of like girls, it's just who I am. Circumstances, if that, if that person was different, if my wife was different, if my husband was different, if my kids were different, if my boss was different, if only they didn't do this, then I wouldn't be the way I am and I wouldn't be tempted to do fill in the gap. No, James says it is you, it is your fault, it comes from your own desires. Let's stop blaming other people because the beautiful thing about shifting responsibility from you is that it takes all attention off you so now you can blame God, you can blame others, you can blame circumstances while all the time God is saying, I died for you and your sin. It started right at the beginning in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve in the garden. They've just sinned. They've just taken from the the fruit of the tree. God specifically told them not to. And then God comes looking for them in the garden and they're hiding. And what is it that Adam says straight away? The woman whom you gave me. Within four words, he blames everybody else and God. Then the Lord said to woman, what is it that you have done? And what does the woman do? The serpent deceived me. So we've got mankind, we've got God, and we've got Satan. It's all everyone else's fault. While actually the decision to, be, uh, to, to go astray was light, laid completely with Adam and Eve. And we just do the same again. It's a little bit like a student blaming the professor for the test that they set. Let's say they failed Badly. Well, it was not my fault for not studying. Of course not. No, it was the professor's fault for thinking they were crazy enough to think that you should actually be tested. Or it's the test's fault. It was the paper's fault. It was the teacher's fault. It's the pen I was using's fault. It was the person next to me's talking fault. It was because I wasn't allowed to use Google in the middle of my exam fault. No, you are to blame. And this is countercultural because we don't like the idea of actually saying to ourselves, maybe. Maybe I'm the problem. Maybe I'm the problem. There's a lot of writing over this, especially Jonathan Edwards, and he he wrote a, a phenomenal paper that's very heavy to read, but essentially he comes to the conclusion, although a staunch 
uh, Calvinist in many ways, in, in, in lots of ways, very, very reformed in, in belief when it comes to free will and salvation, yet he would still say this in his work, and this isn't a direct quote because this actually is easy to read. Um, having free will means you always only do what you most desire to do, so take responsibility. If you want free will in life, then you get to do what you really want to do, and it's your desire. So you have to address this desire that you have. That's the issue. Why am I pressing this? Because it's only until we get to the place where we understand that we are the issue that we actually get down the road towards finding healing and health and forgiveness. While we're constantly shifting blame for the issues that we are making a decision about, we don't get any further. It just leads to death. If you have an addiction on a website, you're constantly looking at porn and you are constantly being tempted, you can blame anyone, anything, your upbringing, circumstances, culture, whatever you want, until you get to the point where you realize that you are actually sinning against God himself. There is no help there. There's no forgiveness there. There's no healing there. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It's very interesting when you look at the Old Testament, when you look at what sin actually was in the, in the Old Testament, you'll see that, that actually the way that it's referenced in the Old Testament is not things, bad things that you do like we would see or, or, or breaking rules. Sin is actually described in the Old Testament. This is, this is, we need to wrap our minds around this a little bit, but it actually becomes quite obvious. Sin is described in the Old Testament by God all the time by, as spiritual adultery, going after other gods instead of him. Martin Luther famously said, if we followed the first commandment, which is worship God above all others, then all the other commandments take care of themselves. You see, what this spiritual adultery is like is exactly the same as physical adultery, that often adultery starts when the spouse believes they can get what they are lacking elsewhere whether that be attention or uh, there's some insecurity there or affection or they just want to feel good, man or woman will start looking elsewhere because they're feeling they can't find that. Where they are actually found in their marriage, they'll start looking elsewhere, which is where adultery starts. In the exact same way, what we do is we look to God and go, actually, I think I can find what I need elsewhere. I'm not going to worship God as my ultimate. I'm going to worship other things instead. And often these other things, there's nothing wrong with them. When we make something else ultimate, we are committing sin. So sin is not breaking the rules, but it's actually tied up in this word desire. It's a very interesting word in the original Greek. It literally means over-desire, epi-desire, if you like. When you want something too much, when you taste something good, name it. Nothing wrong with money, nothing wrong with marriage, nothing wrong with kids, nothing wrong with having a career or ambition or success, nothing wrong with wanting good grades at school, nothing wrong with wanting that girl or wanting that guy or whatever it might be. But when that becomes ultimate, you have an epi-desire for it, that's when it ultimately can lead to death, spiritual death. You fill that in and you get seduced away believing that that thing that you have got your attention on is going to bring you ultimately what you thought God would bring you. God says that is sin. God's great. Jesus is great. I love everything to do with singing and church. Jesus is awesome. But I have to have this. 
Because if I don't have that, then life is not worth living. If that is the case for us, then that's what ultimately brings spiritual death. Because it grips us. Sin starts as a desire, it turns into an action, this action turns into a habit, this habit starts turning into an addiction again, and this addiction and habit starts revolving and then it starts changing a character. This character starts changing and then suddenly you've got this trajectory towards spiritual death. And the further we are down this road of addiction or sin, the harder it is to pull back from us. So what James is doing in the corner of this boxing ring is saying, look, you need to know where these punches are coming from, and it's you. He says you need to be ready for your own desires. You need to make sure that you keep your own desires in check. So how do we do that? So in the middle of this fight, how do we actually fight? The Scottish preacher and teacher Thomas Chalmers said this, the only way to break the hold of a beautiful object on the soul is to show it an object even more beautiful. The only way that we're ever going to break out this cycle of sin and temptation and addiction, whatever that might be for you, you can be addicted to anything, anything that turns in on itself, this over-desire, replacement of God, where you've made God ultimate, uh, sorry, when you've made something ultimate other than God, the only way that you can break out of that is to get into the fight. And what does the fight look like? It's putting your attention on something even more beautiful than the thing that you think is ultimate. And what is that? Well, then we go back to that verse 17. It is God that he chose you as Jesus. This is why we, we constantly preach about practices, about positioning yourself so that you can fall in love with Jesus, the ultimate beautiful object, the one who gave his life for you, the one that died a horrible, shame-filled death for you. It only ref- the shame and, the, and the, the horror of his death reflects the sin and the, the grip of spiritual death that we feel, and it dies with him. And by believing in Jesus and making him Lord and following after him, that we can find newness of life and healing and wholeness and forgiveness. But it starts with recognizing that you cannot fix yourself. The same scripture in Genesis chapter 3 has this amazing aspect to it that I want to encourage you with. After they had sinned, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? Remember when I started saying that God is good and of his own will, he sought you out? Where are you? Those three words echo through all of scripture. Where are you? See, God knew exactly where they were. I've played hide and seek lots of times with toddlers. It's hilarious. Okay, go. And you hide. And you can hear them go. <laughs> and you can even hear the direction they're going in because they're not very subtle with their feet. And they go down the hallway and you're like, okay, they've gone to the laundry room. You know, and so then you make a big deal of it, don't you? You kind of go around, are they in the microwave? No. And you hear the giggle. Are they in the toilet? Well, if it was Jack, yes, but that's a whole other story. I wonder if they're upstairs. Dum, dum, and you get the giggle from the laundry room. And you slowly make your way to the laundry room and there's a big chubby toddler leg sticking out of the bottom of the closet. I wonder where they are. 
You open the closet underneath the sink, and there they are, cramming themselves in between the bleach and the disinfectant. It's fine, they'll be okay. <laughs> Don't lick that. Put that down. That's not what God's like. It's like, seriously, that is a lot like us hiding from God in our sin and shame. We're hiding behind tiny little branches of success or tiny little trees of good looks or tiny little trees of, of past achievements or even smaller little trees of the car that we drive or the house that we live in or the, the beauty or the handsomeness, is that word, of our spouse. We hide behind them hoping that, that God, like everyone else, won't actually be able to see past the reality. It's like, I'm just going to and hope he doesn't notice. Adam said, I heard. Some of you are hearing him this morning. Walking through the garden of your life, and he's saying, where are you? Because this sin from your own desire has drawn you away from me. You have chased after other things in life, believing that you are going to find life and forgiveness and wholeness and health in all these other things. Where are you? So some of us are hearing even this morning. And we're afraid. We're afraid that we'll fail again. You can remember a time, maybe a couple of weeks ago, when you were like, man, I had such a beautiful time with Jesus. And then it just wanes. You made a decision. You fell again. You looked at that website again. And you're afraid that if you commit yourself back to Jesus and you ask for that forgiveness that he willingly will give you and, and will rush upon you again, that you're only going to fail again. And you're afraid of that. So what's the point of coming behind the twig? Maybe you're afraid that God sees you like other people see you. Maybe you're afraid that God thinks you're a a fake like you see that yourself as you're a fake, that God sees you as other people see you, or you see God as you see your dad, or whatever it might be, we're just afraid. We're afraid of coming out of behind our tiny little twigs of life and saying, actually, yeah, Jesus, I'm going to make you Lord. I'm going to get into the fight, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm going to follow you. So I'm naked. This is the... This was the point of Adam, I believe, like the prodigal son coming back to Jesus, coming back to God. Like, I got nothing. What's the first thing that God does? Makes him some clothes. I find that phenomenal. See, this isn't an angry God. This is a loving father coming to look for the kids that have strayed, who are afraid, who are naked and exposed. And I read that, and, and i got to admit, there are, there are days that this is me. And I wonder if that's you this morning, hiding from God. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He chose you. In the midst of the trial and the challenge, there's a temptation. You have a choice. The choice is, do we fight towards keeping him ultimate through our practices and through spending time with him, coming to him, 
knowing that he is a good, kind, loving, and patient father. We need to look to Jesus and all that he has done for us, fall in love with him. Jesus is one of, one of the things that Jesus said to a group of churches in uh, the Revelation, is that you have forgotten your first love. And I wonder if that's you this morning. You just need to fall in love with him again. That's the only way. And so there is a fight to be had. Let's put the excuses aside. Let's take responsibility for the sin and the desires that we have. Let's place our attention upon he who is actually able, who loves you, who cares for you, who only wants good things for you. And then in the middle of that fight, that's where the fight is, to get our attention upon him. Know that he is a good God. Every perfect gift is from above. And he constantly asks, where are you? And he loves you. What a great way, great way to finish our service this morning, that we can go out knowing that we've been chosen, cared for, and loved. Amen? Okay, we're going to sing. We've gone 10 minutes over, and it was worth every minute. We're going to sing, and we're going to stand together, and we've got our town hall. We're going to be very conscious of time, so the quicker you can come back in, and we can start that. And if you are part of downtown, we encourage you to come. But if you just want to be like, well, what's going on? Then please stay. You're very welcome to stay. Um, And uh, we'll, we'll enjoy some time together. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, it's so easy to hear these words with with kind of head knowledge, knowing that this is true. And yet, Lord.